Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. This is Daniel Coughlin. He's a student in New Geneva Academy, which is our pastor's training college. And this morning he's going to be presenting the scripture texts. He's going to read it for us for the sermon. Give your attention to Daniel and to the reading of God's Word. Well, good morning. Uh, Today we'll be reading from Acts chapter 5. So if you have a Bible, Acts chapter 5, verses 12 to the end of the chapter. At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. But none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to their number, to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets, so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. Also, the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. But the high priest rose up, along with all his associates, that is the sect of Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. They laid hands on the apostles and put them in a public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison, and taking them out, he said, Go, stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. Upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest and his associates came, they called the council together, even all the senate of the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought. The officers who came did not find them in the prison, and they returned and reported back, saying, We found the prison house locked quite securely, and the guards standing at the doors. But when we had opened up, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them as to what would come of this. But someone came and reported to them, The men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid of the people, that they might be stoned. When they had brought them, they stood before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. But when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, 
respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him. But he was killed, and all those who followed were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished. All those who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be found fighting against God. They took this advice, sorry, they took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Daniel. Well, we're finishing out chapter 5 of the book of Acts today. Last week we covered the first 11 verses, which is the account of Ananias and Sapphira, which is a very heavy and sober passage of Scripture. It's an example of a negative miracle, for lack of a better term, when God through his Holy Spirit, acts in this world in a miraculous manner to bring judgment to bear. Typically, the miracles that we read of in Scripture are miracles which um, are miracles of benevolence and healing, mercy-oriented miracles, which is appropriate for the message of hope and reconciliation in, in Jesus Christ. So the miracles that normally attend the preaching of the Word and the ministry of the apostles in Scripture is, are miracles of benevolence. Here's a, a negative miracle. And judgments like this are wake-up calls for the church, for all of us. They're used of God to um, purify, refine His church. And we see the fruit of that purification evident even in the passage, the rest of the chapter that we're going to look at today. Well, in the verses that remain, we have a couple of recognizable sections the first is a kind of summary transition section, verses 12 to 16, which the, Luke often in, inserts between narrative accounts to keep the narrative ball, uh, train running down the tracks, move the story along, but also to summarize what's happening so you get a feeling for the development and the progress of the gospel, of the preaching, and of the growth of the church. That's what we'll look at in verses 12 to 16. And then after that is the second imprisonment of the apostles so far in Acts. The first was just of a couple of them. Now it's all of them wind up in jail and stand before the council and are put on trial. And we see how God delivers them twice from the hands of their accusers in this story and also how they respond and with incredible faith and joyful faith. It's like it's superhuman. It really is their response to this trial in their life. Well, let's look at it. Turn to verse 12. 
here in this first section, this transition section, we see um, God blessing, pouring out His blessings on the church in the wake of His judgment of Ananias and Sapphira. There's five things Luke wants to draw our attention to, uh, especially, first of all, is that there are continuing miracles that are being performed. Verse 12, at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. This signals a return to the type of miracles that normally attend the gospel, these benevolent mercy miracles. Are miracles like these that we see in the book of Acts in operation today, are they common among us today? Any honest person has to say, no, they're not. And then you have to wonder, well, are we deficient in some way? Is this the norm that should, we should expect among us today? Is some, what's, how, how do we compare our, our experience and the norms of the church today with the experience in the book of Acts? This is one of the challenges of interpreting the book of Acts. Well, I'm not going to say there are absolutely no miracles being performed today. God answers prayer and often works in ways that Christians giving Him glory and the glory due Him would say, that's miraculous what God accomplished. That is a miracle. But yet there's something very different, isn't there? They're less frequent than anything we see in Scripture, and they're not like performed by men. Here seems to be some, sometimes people uh, touch others and they're healed. Sometimes people pronounce you're healed with their voices and it's almost as if they have special authority to perform miracles, and they do. Jesus himself had this, and the, the purpose of miracles in, in, at this time is unique to confirm these men. First of all, Jesus, the Messiah, to confirm him in his teaching and his ministry, to give a- added emphasis and weight, like a stamp of an architect on a, on a set of plans. It's like adding God's approval visibly, so that you can't write this guy off. He is not just like anybody else. Look at God's power at work through him. They're confirming in that way. And also with the apostles. That's how miracles and the power and the authority to perform miracles worked. God, these apostles, these 12 men, God is going to have right inspired scripture, and all men must trust them and what they say. And so God adds these miracles to add weight to their leadership, to their voice, so that people will listen to them as men with authority. They're also the foundation stones upon which God is laying and building His church together with the prophets before them. These men have unique authority and a role in the development of the church. So There are miracles that Luke wants us to see as continuing. The blessings of Pentecost are continuing to be poured out on the church, and and these men and their authority is being more and more established visibly and confirmed visibly to the people. The second thing is that the church is going more and more public. In the second half of verse 12, it says, they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico, Solomon's porch. All... They were all, it says, by this point, that includes many thousands of people. We've seen the progress and the numbers accruing, and we're now in the multi-thousands of believers in Jesus. And all of them were meeting together in a very conspicuous place, a high-visibility location in the courts of the Lord. This This was a common meeting, public meeting place in public center. 
So it's like going down to the town square and meeting there as a church. Luke wants us to see that along with the growth in numbers, there's also a growth in visibility, a confidence to be out and about and be known as, as believers in the Lord Jesus, as his followers. This is quite a change from this 120 people huddled up fearfully in the upper room just a few chapters earlier. Now they have this confidence, and there is strength in numbers. There really is strength in numbers. And the Lord is adding through numbers strength to their faith. I talked to a pastor at um, our conference, a dear brother, and their church has just gone through some heavy losses. A number of people have moved away. And in a small church, especially when you have a handful of families leave, it's very noticeable. And he said, of course, so as you can imagine if you were there, he said, it's been very dispiriting and discouraging to the rest of us. Not just to me as the pastor, but to everybody. I feel everyone's discouragement. Well, this highlights this, this, this reality that there really is strength in numbers, and God is using just the growth in numbers in part to grow their faith and to grow their confidence to be out in public as Christians. We're actually quite a big group. In our presbytery, which is small, we're the biggest church. As I was preparing yesterday, I thought, what if we took this downtown? What if a couple of times a year, okay, maybe just once a year, <laughs> we met for a worship service in a public place? What if we went to People's Park and worshiped the Lord? It's equivalent to what they're doing. Would it be good for us? Would it give us opportunities to testify publicly? Would it get us out there more as believers and exercise that faith that God we know and have recognized that we need to grow in? I think it would. So the church is going more and more public. That's the second thing. The third thing is that hypocrites like Ananias and Sapphira are turned away from the church and, and they, they're, they're afraid <laughs> to come around. This is the meaning in verse 13 when it says, but none of the rest dared to associate with them. There's some challenges to figuring out who exactly Luke is talking about those, the, when he says none of the rest. But most um, commentators seem to agree that Luke is referring not to unbelievers in general, but to hypocrites in particular. None of the ilk of Ananias and Sapphira, people who are opportunistic Christians who are coming into the church at this time because they have their finger to the wind and they, they see this, you know, there's a groundswell here. This is quite a movement and there's pretty cool things happening. I'd like to be in on it and I think I might be able to achieve some kind of status among these people. That's Ananias and Sapphira. And Luke is saying people took warning. People like that took warning didn't want anything more to do with the church, and that's good. That's what the Holy Spirit intended, <laughs> to warn his people away from such sins and such connivances, that's a word, and to warn hypocrites like Ananias and Sapphira, who are worldlings, wolves in sheep's clothing, to warn them away from the church. God cares very much about the purity of his flock and their spiritual safety and health. 
And that's one of the good effects that comes from his dealings with them. However, second half of verse 13 says, the people held them in high esteem. So even though there was this increased sort of fearfulness and distance and, oh, okay, <laughs> that, that is created and established by God's judgment of Ananias and Sapphira, there's also this esteem. They can't help but respect them. I mean, look what's going on. They have men with such authority and command. They have this incredible generous spirit among them where they all share things in common. This is respect. I mean, you, you don't, even if you can't buy in, even if you can't share the faith of this, this is respectable. It's something amazing happening among these people. And they hold them in high regard and high esteem, the people do. Fourth thing is that the church experienced continued and dramatic growth. Verse 14, And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to their number. It's pretty dramatic advancement of the gospel. This growth comes in the wake of God's dealing with Ananias and Sapphira. It's, it, you can't separate <laughs> God's judgment and the fear that is established even among the believers and this growth in numbers. It kept some hypocrites away, but it was also part of what God used to draw many to himself along with the other miracles, along with the preaching in general, but it's part of what God was doing and using. And so we should have faith for hard things. You heard the pastoral prayer. We should have faith for hard things, sober things to be dealt with in the household of God. We should have faith for prophetic preaching that offends and makes us uncomfortable. You all have known the feeling. I hope you've known the feeling. If you've been here a while, you've known the feeling of having a guest that you've invited or knowing somebody invited a guest and, oh my goodness, this is the sermon they're hearing? Have faith for it. God grows his church through these things. Let God be God. He can take care of himself. He can call people to himself however he chooses to. And if we think it's all about us to keep on a nice and respectable front and, and defend God from his own holy character, oh, what, who wants to be a part of a church like that? That's not a, it's not a spirit-filled church. It has no power. Let's let God's power be here. So have faith for discipline announcements and, and all of the, the rest of the normal work of God among his people. God, his, his hands are not tied by those things, rather loosed. So have faith. Well, the fifth thing is that Luke, at the end of this little section, circles back around to the theme of miracles and he emphasizes here the neighborliness of people bringing the sick and infirmed and demon-possessed to the apostles, to the streets where the apostles will pass, hoping to get them a cure for what ails them. Verse 15, they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them in cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. Also, the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem, surrounding towns, were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. 
Uh, We know that Jesus performed many great miracles, miracles of healing, casting out demons, feeding the hungry. Uh, There's even a raising the dead with Lazarus. There's even an account of him, um, of a woman touching just the hem of his robe, of his garment, and being healed immediately from a long-term illness. Amazing things. Do you know that Jesus said to his disciples on the night in which he was betrayed and the night before he died that they would do greater things than him? And here's one little evidence of the the apostles doing greater things than Jesus. Jesus never healed anybody by his shadow. And yet Peter's shadow was known to have healed the sick. And so they're doing everything they can to bring these people up in the vicinity of this guy so they can get healing for their bodies. Later, just so you know, a heads up, later in the book, there's like handkerchiefs and, and cloth that touches the skin of the Apostle Paul that's carried to people who are sick or possessed of a demon and they're cured, they're healed. <laughs> Greater things than I do, you will do. So God, Jesus, remember, in the book of Acts, this is a continuation of his ministry. He's now in heaven working by his spirit through his church. And so to, it's almost like to reassure people, he's very much there. <laughs> he's adding greatness to the apostles over even the things that he, he achieved when he was here, at least insofar as miracles are concerned. But Luke's emphasis isn't really on the miracles as much as it is on the solicitude, the kind, the neighborliness of the healthy towards the sick who are working hard to get their, their friends, their neighbors up to Jerusalem, up to the street where Peter is known to pass so that they can receive healing. They are working hard to care for one another in this town. Now, do you know your neighbors? Do you carry their burdens in your heart? If there was a man who was known to pass by your street sometimes, or ten streets over, and he could heal people, would you even know which of your neighbors you need to get there? Well, let's say that you do know your neighbors and you're involved in their life. I think that's a a stretch for most of us, actually. And it's, a, it's an epidemic in our society today. People and the way we design our houses, I've heard it, you've heard it, that when you, it's like we, we, we live in our homes, we open our garage door, we get, well, we get in our car, open our garage door, drive to work, come home, close the garage door, and we don't ever see each other in our neighborhoods. I don't know all the reasons why this is, but it's bad. And we should be trying, we should be living differently. We should, it's hard work to get to know your neighbors. They're closed off. We're closed off from one another in our society. At least in our neighborhoods. We should be working hard to live a different life. And it is hard work. You have to pray about it. You have to seek opportunities. Ask God to to create opportunities for you to make a real meaningful connection with the people that you live next to. But one of the applications of this, the example of these citizens of Jerusalem at this time who, are, who, 
who know there's help, and they're trying to get the people that need the help to the help. They're working hard to do it. They're carrying them over there. Is that we have, we know the healer. We know the spiritual healer of souls. We have received his cure, his tincture in our lives, you and me. He has healed us deeply in our, in our conscience, in our soul. We should be working much harder to bring people to Jesus. How unneighborly. It is like the most unkind and unfriendly thing to do to, to keep Jesus and the knowledge of the gospel and the healing balm of the gospel from people. Shame on us. Shame on us. We have, I don't even know how to refer to it with appropriate language, we have the most profound and powerful miracle. The miracle of regeneration. Not like we can create it, but we know the truth that it comes from. We know the Spirit. We have tasted of Him. We have His the experience of his work in our life personally. And we can use these things and proclaim these things to people and call them to Jesus, the healer. Well, that's the first transition section in the text. And in verse 17, we start this long account of how the apostles wind up in jail again and how they get out of jail and how they get before the council and how they get out of the council and then their response to it. There's really one amazing point, big point, I think, from this for us at the end. So let me just try to summarize this text so we have it in our minds, what's going on. So previously in chapter 4 of Acts, in verse 17, the Jewish leaders had already convened and met with a couple of these apostles and clearly gave them an injunction not to speak anymore in this man's name. The apostles had conscientiously objected and said, you judge for yourselves, men. We're under God's authority. We cannot stop speaking. So you judge for yourselves if it's right for us to obey you or to obey God in this. We're under orders from God. We cannot stop speaking. Well, they ended up having to let them go at that time, but they thought that they had done their work, you know, told them not to speak anymore. Well, that hadn't worked, and it's becoming very clear, painfully clear. Thousands more are joining themselves to the cause of the Lord, the way of Jesus Christ to the church. These leaders are feeling themselves threatened by it. And we start to see the motivation clearly acknowledged for their hatred and persecution of the church, which is jealousy. That's talked about here in this text. So fearing their loss of influence, filled with jealousy, the Jewish leaders lay hands on the apostles, all of them this time, and throw them in the jail planning to, to bring them and try them before the council the next day. The whole, uh, the whole synod is, is assembled this time. That's verses 17 to 18. During the night, an angel of the Lord comes, 
opens the prison gates and sets the apostles free. God's first deliverance here, which is supernatural, angelic deliverance. Not the first, or not, it is the first, but not the last that we'll see in the book of Acts. The angel, before departing from them, instructs them, go, stand, and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. And there's a couple of really great things about this. First, these men have really stood in con- in, in, on the con- conscience. They have... They have made a decision to defy the, the, the God-appointed authorities over them, which is no small thing, according to God's word. We're to live in subjection to the governing authorities. These men honor God in this way. They take authority seriously just as God does. They're not defiant by nature. They're wanting to be humble citizens. But they say, in good conscience, I'm sorry, we cannot obey you. We have to keep speaking. They've really stuck their neck out doing this. So one of the sweet things is, is that they, they knew that they were under authority. They remember the Great Commission. But the angel comes and he, he tells them, go right now. Go to the temple and declare. Teach the people. Speak to the people. That's from God to soothe their conscience, to assure them that they are obeying the Lord and that he's pleased with them. And he would have them immediately before, you know, like before the night's over. <laughs> Go right now to the temple and start doing this work again. It's one of the sweet things about this. The other thing is, is how the, the, the gospel itself is, is summarized. The whole message of this life. There's a number of beautiful expressions that, that help fill out our understanding of the message of the gospel. This is one of the great ones. The whole message of this life. Is it the whole message of your life? A lot of us are like, oh yeah, it's well and good here on Sunday morning. <laughs> it's the message of my life at church, for church. Many of us would say also, confirm also, that it's the message of our life in our homes. So at church and in our homes, it's the message of all of the life that happens there. And it applies perfectly well there. But oh my goodness, out in public, at my job, in my classroom at school, it's the, it's the whole the message the whole message of this life really there is nowhere that there's no part of existence that God's word does not speak to now it's not like a manual where we can find you know exactly directly immediately the issue we're looking for but the principles are there and with a little bit of thought a little bit of good counsel a little bit of coming to the pastor to see how it applies or how God speaks to this issue in my life. God has given us all we need for life and godliness in his word. And that's positive, but it's also a heavy thing, which means that there's nowhere where we're not accountable to God. His word addresses the whole of life. And there's not a little corner anywhere that's neutral where we can escape our our accountability to the Lord. Obediently, in verse 21, we see the apostles going right away at daybreak from the jail to start preaching again in the temple. At the same time, the Jewish council is called to order. The prisoners are sent for, and embarrassingly, they're not found. They're not there. 
Nobody understands. There's a lot of confusion around, around this escape. There's no sign of an escape. What's going on? That's verses 22 to 23 and 24. And then someone comes in, rushes in from the temple and announces, those men that you put in prison, they're in the temple teaching the people right now. Verse 25. So the captain is sent out to bring the apostles back to the council, which he does this time without violence. I think Stephen was it in chapter 4 when you were preaching, that it was a little bit of roughhousing, <laughs> perhaps, much more uh, commanding in chapter 4. Well, here there's a lot of people around, and the people are clearly standing with the apostles and friendly towards them, and there's a, there's a real threat to the powers that be at this time from the church, and they're feeling it more and more. So this time they bring them without violence for fear of the people, verse 26. And it's noteworthy that the apostles don't take advantage of the situation and turn the crowds against them. They're not those kind of men. They're showing themselves to be upholders of the peace. Peaceable men. So now before the council, the apostles are questioned Verse 27, the high priest points out that they have violated the council's injunction by filling Jerusalem with their teaching. We told you not to teach, speak, work in the name of this man anymore. And now you fill the whole city with his, with his teaching. He also complains that they even intend to bring this man's blood. They won't refer to him by name. They won't dignify Jesus with his name. They just keep saying, this man, <laughs> this man's blood you intend to bring on, our, on us as if we're guilty of some innocent man's blood. Well, in the creed, we, we, we affirm that Jesus was crucified also under Pontius Pilate. And so he was. Pilate was the top dog, the head of Hacho and top authority. The buck stops there. But do you remember Pilate was ready to move on and to let Jesus go and that these people demanded that he be crucified, and they even said, his blood be on us and on our children. On us and on our children. And now here they're protesting. You intend to bring his blood on us. Well, this just shows that they really believed Jesus was not an innocent man and worthy of death. Why else would they say such a thing and then sort of act as if they hadn't? It's only because they really believed that Jesus was, was worthy of death. There was no, I mean, the Roman governor couldn't see it, but he doesn't understand our laws. We saw it, and we had no hesitation of, of taking responsibility for that blood guilt because he's guilty. That's their view of Jesus. It's not the view of the apostles or of a growing number of people in the, in the town. So they're feeling nervous. You're telling people we're guilty of an innocent man's blood. To this, the apostles give their fa famous reply, we must obey God rather than men, verse 29. And this is not just bravado. They immediately preach to their faces, contrary to their order, and they bring the blood of Christ upon them. Do you see that? In verse 30, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross, you. You men. And God raised him up. So they bring upon them the condemnation and the guilt. 
They go on, he is the one, verse 31, he is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior. And then look, they preach the good news, the message of forgiveness and grace in Christ Jesus to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Why has he been raised to the highest place? To grant forgiveness. Isn't that beautiful? And here they are preaching the good news to this group of haters. We're witnesses of these things, they say in verse 32, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him, as if to say, to you too, if you turn and believe. And brothers and sisters, this is apostolic preaching. This is right there. That's what they do. This is state-of-the-art apostolic preaching. Very simple, inescapable, painfully personal, direct the kind of preaching that you either fold your hand and repent or you just you get very angry and you say away with such a one from the earth which is the one what was their response here well it's interesting that every time this kind of almost every time this preaching occurs this type of preaching occurs there's this statement that they were cut to the quick they were cut to the heart but that doesn't mean you 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 can you can go from there one of two ways And here we see, earlier in Acts 2, we saw them go one way in mass. Here we see them go the other way. They get angry. They're filled with rage, and they want to kill them. They want to kill them. Enter Gamaliel, member of this council, one of the Pharisees, probably leader among the Pharisees, a very famous teacher of the law, famous for being Paul's own instructor in the school, the Apostle Paul. And he comes in, he's a prudent, cautious man, maybe more timid, more like sort of doesn't like all of us, like a professor. <laughs> he calls for an executive session. The men are escorted out for a time so he can speak privately or openly with the council. And he advises a policy of toleration. And he gives a couple of, 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 of examples from Israel's own history where he says, men have come before. Men have risen up, zealous men, leaders of the people, revolutionaries, and they've been done away with. They've, all, they've died. They've, it's all come, of no, come to nothing. That's happened so many times, brothers. And from this, using these examples, he, he says, we should, we should just wait it out. See how this plays out. If this is... If, if this is of the flesh, if this is of men, it's going to die. It can't stand against God's truth and God's, God's people. God's plan is going to win. If it is God's plan, then there's nothing you can do to stop it. You want to find yourself fighting against God? Now, it's interesting. Isn't this filled with truth? This is biblical wisdom being applied here. Very sound. And people have speculated, well, is Gamaliel like a closet Christian? Does he have secret sympathies for the way of Jesus? The Jews say absolutely not. He's one of ours. He stayed one of ours to the end. The early Christian church said, oh no, he became a Christian late in life. Scripture doesn't tell us. We don't know authoritatively for sure. But isn't this interesting that this is the argument that God uses from one of the council themselves? to deliver his apostles. And without this man, Gamaliel, we would not have the apostles' continued ministry after this point. 
and the epistles and all this great stuff. God used this man one way or another to bring about deliverance for these men. They took his advice, verse 40, and instead of killing the apostles like they had intended to do, they flogged them. Flogging. It's like a big public spanking. Probably very brutal. Certainly shameful and embarrassing and humiliating. The Romans saw this as a, one, just a super humiliating <laughs> treatment and punishment to undergo. And so did the Jews. They flogged them and they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And they, and they released them again. Verse 40. So how do the, the apostles respond to this? This is where we're going to end. How do the apostles respond? Well, it's an amazing response that they have to this. Consider how you would respond. Let's say you've spoken out for Jesus. The response to this is a little bit more than you anticipated. They haul you to jail for what you said. They drag you to court in front of a whole bunch of scary men. You only get off the hook because they they completely belittle and dismiss you as probably coming to nothing. (laughs) Who are you, you little ant? We shouldn't even waste our time. Case dismissed. They flog you to reinforce their message. You know, we told you not to speak out anymore in this way. Shame on you. Public shame you. And how would you respond? Would you even get that far? Well, the apostles did get that far. Their faith carried them to this point, carried them through this difficulty and trial, and it also informed and shaped their response. And it was almost like a natural response, the response of joy and rejoicing, where they considered themselves amazingly worthy. God had considered us worthy to suffer in this way. This is a high honor. And they didn't have to, as I've said a couple of times over the summer, they didn't have to like stop and remind themselves of the truth. This is the truth that was deeply implanted on their hearts and it came out naturally without effort. This is what they believed. And that shows that they really genuinely believed what Jesus had said to them from early in his ministry. If you're persecuted for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. And your reward in heaven is great. They're men who are living for eternal reward. Eternal blessedness. And they take hold of that by faith here and now. And they bolster themselves up on a daily basis with it just as you and I can. It's the same, same promises, same hopes available to you and me. You can carry them in their heart wherever they go. Not that they're looking for opportunities to, to be persecuted. My goodness, who would? But they're not going to shy away from them. And when they come, they're going to they're gonna rejoice because this is a testimony to them that their reward in heaven is sure and very great. 
And what an honor and privilege to follow in the steps of my master. That's probably the greatest thing to them. I get to be like my master. And I am one of his. I belong to him and here's the proof. They hate me because they hate him. And so I'm with him. I must be. second amazing thing is not only that they rejoiced but that they did not shrink back or crawl back into their hole they did not hang up the sword well my work here is done <laughs> I've made it but they, they kept right on preaching and teaching they got right back to work they kept right after it they did not let this scare them off or deter them the threat of greater responses or, or worse heat from the council did not deter them. They kept right on doing the work. Verse 42, every day in the temple and from house to house, just like the Apostle Paul later, from house to house, they're going around in public and in private. They're doing the work of ministry, proclaiming the word of the Lord, preaching and teaching Jesus as the Christ. Should faith like that, joy and obedience and faithfulness, be a norm for us today? We talk about normative things from the book of Acts. Oh, I hope that's normative. I want that for myself. I want it for you, for this church, to be zealous for proclaiming the Lord. To not be looking for opportunities to get in trouble for it, but if they come, not be afraid or ashamed or rather to be good commentators who you know like enter into the psychology of how these men must have felt acknowledge that they really did feel shame and it really feels like it feels for you and that there wasn't anything nice about it humiliating but they immediately go out and they rejoice that they were worthy of such a high honor for the Lord. May we be worthy too, you and me. Because it's fun, and because there hasn't been a Calvin quote yet, I'll read you this one. This is on that phrase, as, he, as Calvin puts it, they ceased not, so that they, they kept right on preaching and teaching Jesus. He says, along with their joy, there also went steadfastness. For is not the cause of persecution weakening us and taking the heart out of us the fact that nobody lifts himself to Christ to take into his heart now in advance the fruit of victory and to be stirred up to endurance? Isn't this the reason why persecution takes the wind out of our sails? That we don't lift our hearts up to Christ and take possession now for ourselves by faith? The victory, which is ours. Alas, says Calvin, therefore, for our delicate ways. For having got through the smallest persecution, we at once hand over the torch to others as if we were veteran soldiers already. Let's not let the world scare us off our mission 
we all share a common mission. That is to make Jesus known. The response is up to the Lord. It sometimes will be positive and it sometimes will be negative. And God has grace for us in each circumstance. But we're never going to see the gospel triumph and grow and we're never going to see the encouragement and the snowballing effect of conversions that we see in Acts if we're not living by faith and speaking faithfully, reaching out to people around us and loving them with the truths of Scripture. Let's have faith for that. Let's love the lost, even the Sanhedrin, if it comes to that. And we're called before the whatever committee at the university for the thing that we said in the classroom or, you know, whatever. Let's just be faithful. Seek to be faithful. Love those we're around, whether they are for us or against us. And live for eternity and for an eternal crown, just as these men did. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, the amazing example of these great men who you filled with your spirit. And so, Father, would you fill us too so that we in turn can be faithful and obedient and not shy away or hide away in our cloister, in our home, in our earbuds, but love the people that we're around, seeking their good eternally, seeking their healing in Jesus Christ. Would you help us, Father, and fill us with faith? It is from faith that these things happen, that, our, that we can rejoice in persecutions, and that we can be faithful constantly and not deterred from obedience to you. We need your help. Would you help us? In Jesus' name, amen.